Well, we are in week two of a series called Genesis. And Genesis is based upon the very first book of the Bible that we have. And Genesis comes from this word that just means beginning. And the book of Genesis has lots of beginnings. It has the beginning of creation that we talked about last week. It has the beginning of God's relationship with humanity. It has uh, the beginning of God's sort of relationship with a certain people group. And there's so many different firsts in Genesis. And so we're spending the next month or so looking at uh, different events and characters in the story of Genesis. And we're, we're looking at it from two vantage points. We're looking at it from, first of all, what did it mean to the original readers? We always have to think about that scripture oftentimes is written for us, but oftentimes it's not really written to us. You know, scripture itself is this library of, uh, of God's word. And there are certain moments where, you know, for example, uh, we, we studied, uh, Acts and we studied some of the early church, uh, right before this. And we learned that there were some letters that literally like Paul wrote to different churches and people. For example, I always feel uncomfortable when I read Timothy because when, uh, Paul writes to this young pastor named Timothy, he throws in his letter that forever every Christian will read, Hey, by the way, I know you you have stomach issues, so make sure you drink a little bit of wine. Now, how weird is that, that if you're Timothy, like for the rest of, uh, you know, until Jesus comes back, people are going to know you had some stomach junk like that. That feels a little uncomfortable, but we're reminded then that we need to understand what did it mean for the original people? What would it, you know, when we look at the context, the original language, so we're trying to do that, but we're also looking at it from the vantage point of guess what? We live on the other side of the resurrection. We are empty tomb people. And so we're looking at it from the vantage point of we are Jesus followers and we're trying to follow the way of Jesus. And so what does Genesis that was written way, way long ago prior to Jesus coming, what does that have to say to people like you and me who are seeking to follow Jesus in his way? And so last week we started off looking at the story of creation, which is in the very first chapter of Genesis. And we talked about this idea that the, the, the creation story, or if you want to call it the creation narrative, that the most important parts of it are not necessarily uh, the scientific things, but is about who the creator is, and in turn, who does that make us? And more importantly, maybe, whose does that make us? And we talked about the reality that when God creates, it's always good. And that you and I... Every single one of us, no matter where we were born, no matter the origin of our birth, whether we were on purpose or on accident, we are created with value. We are a masterpiece because we are created in the image of God. And when God creates, he says, it is good. Now, in the story of Genesis, it takes a really quick turn. Everything kind of starts off, it's like a movie, right? Almost every movie, you know, kind of starts off where like the car ride's going really great and you know there's some tension that's going to happen. And this is what happens in the story of Genesis. This morning we're going to talk about the story of Adam and Eve. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard of Adam and Eve. They were the first nudists uh, or something like that, right? Um, we're going to talk about it. We're laughing, but I'm, I'm just going to be, I'm going to forewarn you. We're going to talk about nakedness a little bit this morning, so just... Don't judge me, okay? It's, it's in the Bible, okay? So if you feel uncomfortable, it's, that's the word of God. That's not me. Uh, but we're going to talk about this event that is oftentimes known as the fall or the fall of humanity. This is this first moment of sin. Before we get there, I wanted to tell you guys a story. Uh, if we haven't met before, by the way, I don't know if I already said my name's Aaron. I'm the pastor here. And uh, it is my 
honor and I love getting to be the pastor here. Uh, but I'm not from here. That's a common misconception, although everyone's like, if you've been here for a while, like, listen, we know you're from Michigan. Get over it. Um, but where I grew up in a small town in West Michigan, uh, one thing that was kind of a big deal, like, you know, uh, high school basketball, huge deal in Indiana, right? So in my small little town, uh, sports were a big deal, but the arts were maybe actually kind of a bigger deal. Like they put on lots of plays and performances. They always won like different like band awards and orchestra awards and all that sort of stuff. And so this was a big deal in our community. And when you go into middle school, which was in sixth grade where I was from, uh, you could finally have the opportunity to join band. And so like many of my peers, I decided that I was going to do band in sixth grade. And so uh, I was really um, adamant. I had my heart set on uh, playing the drums, you know, doing percussion. But they said for some reason that I uh, didn't have good rhythm, which they never asked me to dance. So I don't really know how they understood that, because if they asked me to dance, they would see, like, I can get down. But regardless, they didn't let me play the drums, which is still a little bit of a, like, a, am still a little bitter. Anyways, they placed me instead to play the trumpet. And so when I started out in sixth grade, there were 35 other trumpet players in sixth grade. And uh, I, I don't want to brag. I know the Bible talks about being humble. Uh, but by halfway through the semester, I had found myself in the 34th chair. Now, if you're not familiar with kind of the chair system in band, I guess the idea is that if you're the first chair, you're the best. Uh, and as you go down, maybe you're just a little bit more creative, as I like to say. And uh, not only that, how impressive was it that I was the 34th chair? Uh, my friend, Dirk Conendike, what a name. Dirk was actually the 35th chair, and his parents were smart because they knew that Dirk was not going to actually uh, follow through with all of this. And so they knew that if they turned in his trumpet earlier, they could get back more of their kind of deposit at the local music store. So I was 35th chair, or I was 34th chair, and the 35th chair didn't actually have a trumpet for the second half of the semester. So... I was pretty good. I don't want to brag. But so at the end of the semester, I, you know, finally decided, all right, maybe band's not for me. Maybe this isn't my thing. And so I decided I was going to, I talked to my parents beforehand, and they're like, yeah, whatever. And, uh, and I mustered up the courage to go talk to Mr. Ayers, the band teacher. And, uh, and so I remember this vividly. I walk up to Mr. Ayers, and I say, Mr. Ayers, I'm sorry, but I just don't know if band's my thing, and I think I'm going to quit at the semester. And I kid you not, he was like writing on something. He wasn't really paying attention. He just looked up and he said, yeah, I think that's a good idea. (laughs) And that's it. There was no like, well, you could try or just like, you know, do all that. It was just like squashed like a bug. Thank you for uh, laughing at my trauma, everyone. No, you know, it's really funny Because it is a funny story. But it's interesting how something that I actually really didn't care about, how much some words actually kind of hit me. And the reality is, Mr. Ayers didn't know my whole life, and I was probably like a thorn in Mr. Ayers' side. Because I probably did try to like make fart noises with my trumpet. I probably was a distraction. I'm going to guess. Okay, I definitely was. But there's something funny about how words can just cut us, right? Because there's times where not everyone knows the whole story. There's times where people don't know that inside of us, the words that they speak, though they may be true, though they do not intend to hurt, 
may affirm false feelings inside of us. Shame is a feeling we all deal with, right? Whether we like it or not, every single one of us knows the feeling of shame. We've had a parent say a word. We've had a teacher say something to us. We've had some sort of moment, a friend, a sibling, something was said, something happened, and it just took the air right out of us. And sometimes it was based off something we really cared about. Sometimes it was wholly about our value. And sometimes it was just a little thing that affirmed to us the lies that we believed about ourselves. This morning, as we're going to approach this fall of humanity, I want to talk a little bit about sin and shame. Now, to give some primers, sin in of itself, we're going to talk a little about it before before we get in the store. I'm going to give some little precursors. Sin is really just a, a rebellious act that separates us from God. And maybe even a better way to think about it is sin is actions, thoughts, words in which we engage in, in which we are living outside of our identity as children of God. You know, last week we talked about how we are created in the image of God, that we are children of God. You are a son, you are a daughter. And that was you were created to be. And that when we sin, it puts this separation between us in which we begin to act not as who God created us to be, but out of a different identity. Shame is an interesting thing. And maybe you've heard this before, I've said this before here. Shame and guilt oftentimes get intertangled and thought of as the same thing. Guilt is very different. Guilt is I did something bad and I feel bad about it. When I yell at my three-year-old and bring him down to tears, not that I like don't call CPS, but like we've all done that, right, where you just say something, I can feel guilty because I did something bad. I need to apologize. I'm cool with that. Shame, on the other hand, is this internalization of not that I did something bad, but I am bad. I am junk. I am unworthy. I am unlovable. I am stupid. I am ugly. No one could ever want me. That's shame. All right, we're going to be diving into Genesis. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Uh, if not, the words will be up on the screen. But this is after God has, has done all of his creation. He's just created Adam, man in his own image. And this is what we begin and we find out. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat any tree from in, in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now this is, this is sort of a precursor to where we get. This is an important part of the story. This is also a little important aside. This is the very first time that we see boundaries. And here's what's interesting, and here's, here's a little thought nugget that doesn't have a ton to do with what we're talking about this morning, but maybe this is helpful in your own life. Every good, healthy relationship has boundaries. God sets up boundaries. And what's amazing to me is how generous of God. We don't know the size. We don't know everything about the Garden of Eden. But the fact that he says, like, I'm not assuming that the, since it says Garden of Eden, I'm not assuming there's only like four trees. So I'm not, I'm not thinking God's like being crazy restrictive. He's giving one little place, one little command. I mean, today we have like lots of kind of different commands we have to follow. I mean, it's kind of been lumped down to love, but that's still complex. But I mean, Adam had it pretty easy, right? Don't eat from this one place. He sets up this thing. Now, 
God goes on. I'm going to do a little bit of a, a Sparks note, Notes version without reading some of this to get to where we're going to get to. So God, you know, creates all of this. He has Adam begin to name all of the different creatures that have been named. And out of that, he realizes that Adam can find no suitable helper, no suitable partner, no suitable mate. And so God decides to put Adam in a deep sleep. He then uh, creates, he takes a rib out of him. Which is why I believe today most men still love ribs and we have this longing because a rib was stolen from us uh, to create a woman. And that's why. That's just a theological idea that I have. Uh, but anyways, and then God, God gives this, this idea that, you know, uh, a, a man eventually should leave his, his mother's home and him and his wife will be united together and they shall be one flesh. And then this is what he says. This is such a significant, as I was reading this week, it's one of those underrated Pieces of scripture. This is what it says. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, by no means is this going to be a message where I'm going to be like, listen, y'all, it's time for us to go back to the garden. It's time to get naked. We're not going to do that. But let's just think about this for a second, okay? Prior to there being any sin, any fall, this is a spoiler alert that that's going to come in a minute. They are naked and there's no shame. Now think about it. Nakedness is probably the most vulnerable act, most vulnerable thing you can have. That's why intimacy in, in a marriage is so important because there's something about, in theory, hey, you're the only one who sees me this way. I'm the only one who sees you this way. Like nothing is hidden. Cause like, let's be honest. We all try to hide stuff. I would love to be able to lie to you and say this is a medium-sized shirt. A couple years ago, I let it go, the fact that I'm probably a large shirt, especially in the slim fit, right? Okay? It's okay. But think about it. When there's the nakedness, nothing is hidden. That before there was no need, there was no sense of, like, we have to hide anything. And and, and maybe this is is a good way to think about it for us as we continue on. In the beginning, there was nothing to hide. And that where there is not sin, there is not shame. And there's nothing to hide. You know, I really believe this. That shame, though it's a universally experienced, I guess unless you're a sociopath, according to some scientific things, That shame is something that we all can identify with because we've all experienced. It's just part of being a human now. But that it was never something in God's original intention for us to have to experience. Because shame has so much to do with hiding. And we only hide things because we feel bad about things. I mean, I think about my three-year-old. I always know when he's done something wrong. Because he's quiet and he hides. Because otherwise he's always loud and he's always in my face. But the truth is, we'd like to think we've matured, but we do the same thing, right? When something has gone wrong, when we've done something wrong, we oftentimes become quiet and we try to hide. All right, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Read this with me. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, I should give a little precursor. Most of you are already going to pick up on this, but just in case, the serpent here is going to be representing the devil, the enemy, Satan, just so it's good. So the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Let's just pause there for a second. 
Did God really say has ruined many of lives? Did God really say has gotten me in trouble a lot? So Satan begins by attacking this idea of did God really say? And the woman said to the serpent, we may not eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God said, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And let's just talk about it for a second. I think this is early uh, obviousness that sometimes, I'm not saying always, but maybe sometimes ladies, you know, exaggerate just a little bit. I don't think that's actually what God said. He just said, don't eat it. She goes on and says, don't touch it. But anyways, I, I digress. Goes on and says, uh, Satan says this, you will certainly not die for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now pause for one second there. Guys, for far too long, let's be real. We've tried to be like, hey, thanks a lot, ladies. Thanks a lot to Eve. Uh, as far as we know right here in the text, Adam was just sitting there like, ooh, ooh. He doesn't pipe in, so like, let's stop hating on the ladies that it was their fault, even though it kind of was. I'm just kidding. Um, but Adam is standing right there. He's just as involved in this sin, in this fall. Then their eyes were both opened, and they realized that they were naked. That's got to be a weird feeling, right, for the very first time? Just going to throw that out there. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking through the garden in the cool of day. I just think that's cool that he was walking in the garden. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman that you put me here with. He's blaming God. We do that a lot, don't we? The woman who you gave me her, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, no, it was the serpent. He did it. He's the one who convinced me to eat it. The blame game starts. Now the story goes on. And God, being a God who is just, does eventually have to recalibrate his creation, his order. Because sin has came. And Adam and Eve are are banished from the garden. And we'll talk more about what happens afterwards in the rest of that story next week. But this morning I want to talk about this idea of what happened in this story. Because oftentimes when we approach it, I think we just approach it with the like, yeah, they messed up. Yeah, I wouldn't have done that. Like, thanks a lot, Eve. Now we have to go through childbearing and that hurts, you jerk. Or thanks a lot, Adam, for not sticking up and not, you know, stopping your wife. I would have hit that apple right out of my wife's hands. Uh, no, you wouldn't. You would get a backhand. Anyways, but it's an interesting story, especially when we read it from fresh eyes. It's interesting. I think when we think of temptation sometimes... 
Think of when we think of the enemy working against us. I think we either think of him being like, I'm going to like do what happened in the story of Job, and I'm just going to take everything away from you. Or I'm only going to tempt you uh, uh, by, by just giving you something good. And what's interesting that we see from the very beginning, we see later on when Jesus is tempted by Satan, is that oftentimes Satan will tempt us with good things, and he'll tempt us even using what God has promised but kind of tweaking it, twisting it. Again, how did he ask the question? Did God really say you can't eat any of the fruit? He asked this question. He kind of makes it sound very restrictive. You know, a lot of us, sometimes that's a popular thing, right? I don't want to be a Christian. It's so restrictive. I don't want to live that life. When maybe it's a little less restrictive than we want to really talk about. But he, but he, but he, but he goes from that vantage point. But I think what's the interesting part of the story is it's not that interesting or surprising that someone would eventually fall for temptation, that that, that they would do that. But I think what's interesting is the aftermath. They decided to hide. Now, I picture them hiding like how my three-year-old hides, where he's like, Daddy, we're going to go play hide-and-seek, and I will go into a closet. And he's like not hiding behind anything. He's just standing with his eyes closed. And usually as I walk in, he says, Daddy, you can't see me. You can't see me. Like that's what it's like to hide from God, right? Can we be honest? We kind of look foolish when we try to hide from God, even though we still do. But here's what I think happens. We hide because of shame, or we hide because of sin. This morning, I want to share a little bit of my story that many people would not know. And man, it feels weird. And man, it feels uncomfortable to want to do that. But I believe... Leaders have to go first. And for far too long, even in my own life, I want to hide. I want to hide the things from my past that don't paint a good picture. And sometimes it's comfortable to stay hidden in the darkness, just like Adam and Eve did. You see, I told you that even though it was kind of a funny thing that this band teacher, like I didn't really care, those words affirmed into me something that I already was feeling. You see, my brothers, my two older brothers, both were kind of like honor roll student kids. They were great athletes. They were, they were My older brother, JJ, was even a good trombone player, even though he didn't care. Like He was like third chair out of 20 or whatever. And so there was so much of my story, so much of my life, that I felt shame because I felt like, I was sort of the afterthought. I thought that when God created, he got towards the end and just sort of said, here's Aaron. Here we go. And the truth is, some of you may feel that way too, have felt that way before. And what's interesting is that the shame is what led me to sin. You see, out of my shame, I felt so out of control. I felt so unworthy, so unloved, so unseen. And to me, my, my sin of choice that led me to was dealing with an addiction to pornography. And that's a weird, hard thing to want to say as your pastor, because that can feel really weird and all of that. But part of why I wanted to share that this morning was to lead first and say, it's okay to be honest. It's okay to be like, hey, I got junk, because we all got junk. We just usually want to hide it. And what was interesting is that for me, The shame that I had led me to sin. And then my sin just led me to more and more shame. 
You see, shame tends to either cause us to sin or is the result of sin. And sometimes it's the result of our own sin. Sometimes it's the result of other sin. This morning, I know sitting in this room, there are probably people, and I don't want to say this to bring back bad memories, but there are some of us who someone did something to us that they never should have done. And that produced shame inside of us that gave us a false identity. And oftentimes then led us to more sin to rebel back. But may you hear this this morning, that the sin that someone else committed upon you does not define you. It does not define your worth or your value. But for me, my addiction just led me to a place of darkness. And I can remember feeling so unworthy, so dirty. I felt so alone. There's something about sin that it oftentimes, in, in when, it, when it forms especially into this, this beast of shame, it leads us to a dark place where we begin to believe lies that we're the only ones. That there's no way out. This imposter syndrome. Like if people would find out, what would they think? That no one could ever love you because of this. That people are going to walk on the other side of the street when they find out. And you live in this constant state of anxiety and fear where you make up things inside of your head about how your friends, how your family, and even how God thinks of you. And I can remember moments of up and down, of feeling like I would have victory and then I would have failure. And I can remember moments in particular in failure where I would just feel so empty and so alone. And I would, sometimes I would cry out to God and just feel like, God, do you even hear me? Why did you give me this? Why am I dealing with this? And there'd be other times where I just felt like, I don't even feel like I can cry out to God. Because I feel so ashamed. I feel so unworthy. I feel like God, would God even want to help me? Could God even help me? Now, thanks to the grace and the glory of God, there were people in my life that came around me. Thanks to things like counseling and accountability and prayer and and, and changing my life. Let me just tell you this, that if you have sin in your life and you don't change your life, guess what? It's going to keep coming after again and again and again. Many of us sometimes are like, God, why haven't you taken this sin or this struggle away from me? And he's like, hey, hey, have you thought about changing your life? And that was true for me for a long time. But the reality is that sin and shame is a lion that will constantly follow you. Still to this day, if I don't order my life, if I don't have the the, the prayer life, if I don't have the accountability, I am not immune from attacks from the enemy. None of us are. But I share all of that with you this morning for you to know that it is okay not to be okay. And it's okay to stop hiding. And it's okay to stop listening to the voices that tell us, stay in the darkness, go hide, cover yourself up. And it's okay to begin to become vulnerable again. May I even say, metaphorically, not physically right now, Become naked again before the Lord. And just be honest with him about what he already knows. You see, I believe this with all my heart, that shame wants to put us in the dark, but grace wants to bring the light to us. Scripture talks about how everything that is hidden will be revealed. Whether you know it or not, the sin you have, someday it's going to be revealed. 
And the reality is God does not want us to stay there. Would you hear these words that God loves you exactly where you are? He's not looking for you to clean yourself up and come to him. He's coming right to you. He's already there. But there's this reality that while God loves you right where you are in your mess, God loves you far too much to leave you there. God has so much more for you. God says, listen, shame wants to put this identity upon you that you internalize. And where shame wants to tell you that you are unworthy, you are unloved, you are ugly, that you are stupid, that you are a whore. Grace, Jesus wants to say, you are my son, you are my daughter. I love you. I died for you. It is time for you to come back home. In Romans, Paul does this beautiful talking about this idea of how how Adam, the first man, is what helped usher in sin and brokenness into this world. And that through one man, that's where we kind of experience all of this brokenness. But how how Jesus is the greater and the better Adam. That, 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 That through Adam, there's all this sin. But I love, love, love this verse from Romans chapter 5. It just says this. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He reminds all of us this, so we don't have to feel like we're alone, that all, not some, but all, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Every single one of us has junk. Every single one of us has sin. Though we were created in the image of God, though we were created in goodness because of this fall, because of this this reality that sin creates the separation, all of us have a sinful nature. All of us experience sin. All of us experience shame. And yet the good news is that even though all of us have experienced this, all of us still will continue to sin. All of us have been given the opportunity to experience love and love more abundantly. Who have been given the invitation to live a life of freedom through Jesus Christ. If we would choose to seek forgiveness if we would choose to give our life to him, and if we would choose to follow the way of Jesus, to seek his kingdom. My friends, the good news this morning you all need to hear, and may this be very personal, is that Jesus took the fall for all of us. Not just some of us, not just for one segment of people, not just for the people who it looks like they have all their life together, you who are sweating right now because you are wondering if the person sitting next to you knows the junk that you don't want them to know. This morning, I want you to know that the fall has been taken for you, that though there was a fall that was began by one man, that Jesus took the fall for all of us. And no longer do we have to try to work out our own salvation. No longer do we have to try to work as hard as we can to pay a debt that we never could. The debt has been paid. The blood has been shed. New life is freely given to any one of us who would choose. There's a verse in... First John that talks about this idea that God is love. That, that really this whole concept of love, if we want to think about what love is, it's just God. 
And it goes on. One of my favorite verses just says this. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. But this morning, if I may take some creative liberty, may I say this to you, son and daughter of the Most High King. There is no shame in love because perfect love drives out all shame. Perfect love drives out all sin. And the big question for each and every one of us is are we willing to be brave and to come out of the hiding to begin to just be vulnerable and naked before the Lord and just say, Lord, this is my junk. I know you already know it. And I don't know what else to do anymore. May we begin to allow the God of all the universe to place the stars in the sky who, who, who led his people out of enslavement. He, he parted the Red Sea. He made dry bones come alive. The God who sent his son Jesus into this world to die for you and me. To, 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 to not just make a way for us, to be the way for us. Would you allow that God to call you son, to call you daughter, to give you an identity in which you have worth and value, not because of the things that you do, not because of your successes or your failures, but surely because of his goodness, because of his love. I'm going to ask you all to stand with me, and we're going to respond by singing one more song. But I hope in this moment, as we sing, that these words would spill over you. This this song we're going to sing is called Do It Again. And for some of us, we've we've went through this before. Like, Aaron, I've tried this whole, like, forgiveness. I've tried giving this to God. And some of us need to know that God will never stop pursuing you. He will never stop forgiving you. And he will never stop calling out the goodness in your life. That where the sin increases, his grace will increase. That where the voice of the enemy that is calling out the false identities that the world wants to put on you, God is going to speak louder and louder if we would listen. And he will call you his beloved. He will call you his child if you will just listen. Would you guys pray with me? God, I thank you for the fact that, God, you are good. That, God, you're a good father. God, who constantly is seeking to move the mountains of sin and shame in our lives. Who is constantly saying, listen, I know that you think you need to hide from me. I know that you think that this one thing that happened to you, that you've never told anyone else, that it defines you. That it makes you broken, damaged, good. But this morning I want you to know that I am a God who redeems, who restores, who calls value into you. Because I created you. The world doesn't get to say, as the, as, as the Satan said, who told you this? God this morning says to each and every one of us, who told you that you were unworthy? Who told you that you were unlovable? Who told you you were stupid, that you were ugly? It wasn't me. So this morning, would each of us hear that we are sons, that we are daughters, and that maybe for the first time, some of us would experience new life. And all we have to do is reach out and say, Lord, forgive me for the sin in my life. God, take away the shame. Expose it. Would your light shine in the dark places? And would you make me a new creation? I want to follow your son, Jesus. I want to be a disciple of his. I want to live a life like his. And would you know that he'll freely give it? God, I believe 
that you want to have a revival in this church, in this community, in this world. God, we've seen you do it time and time again in our own hearts and throughout history. And so, God, we are believing, we are praying that you will do it again. But, God, would revival start first and foremost in each and every one of our hearts. God, we love you and we thank you. Speak words of life to us. May we hear it and receive it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.